And we're live. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Bottled Up. My name is Mayank and I am stoked to be back in the hosting chair and hosting this episode. Now, we have an incredible episode for you guys today. Earlier this year, I sat down with one of my good high school mates, Solomon Monagle, and it's someone with whom I've known for the past decade. In today's episode, Solomon goes deep into his experiences with mental health during his high school and university years and how he dealt with the struggles that he faced. We do delve into some intense themes of self-harm and suicidality, so the discussion is quite heavy. Now, Sonny Ujwa and I had a brief discussion about this earlier, and we do realize that these themes can have a different effect on people. But we feel it's so important to have these conversations as it allows us to achieve our mission, vision, and goal of normalizing these conversations. And whether you experience these thoughts or not, whether you're working in corporate, retail, hospitality, or law, you are constantly dealing with people and having that understanding of the different ways that the human mind can work is so powerful. We also wanted to let you guys know that due to the length of this podcast and to keep within time, we do delve into a story pretty quickly. So we thought we'd give you a quick heads up about that. Again, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and I hope to see you guys on the other side. So without further ado, this is Solomon Monagle. Solomon, welcome to Bottled Up. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. Not a problem, mate. Uh, we were currently here in your apartment here in Melbourne in this uh, lovely place that you share here with your girlfriend. And I've been very much looking forward to this conversation for the past week. And I can't wait to delve into your story a little bit deeper today because, you know, while it is a bit intense, you know, we here at Bottled Up have the belief that by getting these types of stories out there, we'll be able to normalize these conversations. Um, but Solomon, you and I have known each other for, for quite a while now. I mean, you and I met in year seven uh, at, in high school and sort of went through school together up until year 10, until you left after year 10, if, I'm, if I remember correctly? Yeah, so I was at Halebury consistently until about halfway through year 10, and then I got unwell, and I spent the next semester attending very, very infrequently, and then I lasted all of three days of year 11, yeah. and then had to go, um, and then I yeah, didn't do school for a while. and yeah. yeah, and I think that will definitely form an integral part of our conversation today. And um, But, you know, I remember the first time we actually met Solomon. We've actually known each other for about a decade now, a better half of a decade. And I remember the first time we met, met each other in Year 7. It was, our, it was my first day at school. And since then, we've played school cricket together from Year 7 to Year 10. And we've also played uh, the uh, indoor cricket together as well for the Mighty Serial Offenders, which we also play every Tuesday nights. And we actually have an Instagram page for, so they're called at Serial Offenders. So anyone who's listening to this, please give us a follow. Get around it. Get around it. Yeah, exactly. And um, we've also been to Japan together as well. We have. Long, yes, long it's, ago. It's definitely been a while. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, who would have thought that eight years later we would have been doing a podcast together? Um, I don't think either of us would, would have read about it. So um, I've been very much looking forward to this podcast for the for the past week. Um, but I was hoping to start off our conversation today a little bit differently because, you know, when we started this initiative, everyone told us that these podcasts should be a conversation. But I feel like with your story, obviously, it was a bit of a roller coaster at some stages during your life. And I feel as if the best way to tackle this is to get your story straight up. I mean, during the time that I knew you um, through high school, I knew that something was going on, but I don't think I fully could understand or comprehend exactly what you were going through. And, you know, my knowledge of mental health was pretty much non-existent during that time. And, you know, I didn't really know what mental health was. And, you know, like I've mentioned before, one of our key messages at Bottled Up is to create conversations around this. And one of the ways in which we can do that is to try and get these types of stories out there. And the fact that you're coming on here just shows that, you know, you've got the courage to come on and tell your story is just truly inspirational, man. And, And I can't thank you enough. So, 
Uh, I know I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit, mate, but, uh, you know, I'm happy to hand it over to you. Um, yeah, I guess the floor is yours. Yeah, well, um, first I just want to say, I guess, you know, I, I don't really consider myself all that inspirational. I, I'm one of the lucky people, I suppose, where it's never felt... I've never felt particularly anxious or concerned about what other people's opinion will be of me regarding my mental health. Um, and that's not because I haven't faced some level of stigma for it because I, I have to a degree, but it's more that I've always been pretty confident and felt this assuredness in myself that, you know, any illness is not a mark against the person who's going through it. It's just, it's just what it is. And so it's no indication of how good a person you are or otherwise. So if people aren't going to like me because, you know, probably the most prominent one is, you know, like I have a fair few self-harm scars and I don't make any effort to hide them. I did notice that actually, even in indoor cricket, you they're a part of you and and I, and I really admire the fact that you're not letting that define who you are and you're not covering it up but you're just showing everyone that it, this is this is how it is so that's it's pretty inspirational I've seen that yeah I mean it's it's one of those things that you know they're not my entire life but they're you know they're, they're a pretty big part of like my experiences and um that like they're sort of integral to me and and I, I, some people really wrestle with this because for some people they're a sign of something they don't they wish they hadn't gone through or they you know they're unsightly to them or they, they can't find any sort of self-appreciation for them and to me they they make me feel I guess strong and to a degree almost secure in myself and they're, they're very they're a very positive thing for me at this point um so uh, my story um I'll, I'll stop rambling on and sort of get to it <laughs> no, now. no um, take your time mate a bit of back, you know, I had a pretty, I was a pretty happy kid in general, like sort of flew through primary school, was pretty social, I was terrible at talking to girls when I was a little kid, but I think everyone <laughs> goes, right, I still am. Yeah, yeah, I think it's just a pretty universal thing really. <laughs> um, but so I moved school when I was eight and I moved to, I mean, I went to Haleybury until I was eight and then I moved for year three and immediately I started getting bullied and I stayed there for four years and in that time just it wasn't anything, you know, I think people imagine bullying as, you know, someone running up and, like, punching you yeah. or something like that. And it's, it's, you know, you'd ask, can I play footy with you? And they'd say, why would we want to play footy with you? The little things like that, which over time just chip away at your self-worth. Mm. And I think it's easy to think that that, you know, that it's just kids and they brush it off. But I think it's almost harder when you're a young kid to contextualize what's happened like it's it's you know if you're 20 and someone on the street calls you a dickhead for no apparent reason it's a lot easier to go oh well that was ridiculous and I'm not going to be phased by that but you know between the age like for me between the age of nine and 12 I spent most days you know getting pushed around and getting called like this that whatever Mm -hmm. um and that really seeps into your mentality so yeah because like they talk about you know people at their younger ages being very impressionable and I feel like people are affected by certain things at a younger age and that sort of molds them and shapes them into the people that they are today without us even realizing it. And that is certainly a reality that some people face. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think so in this time between the ages of like eight and a half to maybe 12, I started really exhibiting really strong sense of anxiety and guilt over even really, really minor things. Like I would, I don't know, I would swear and then I would stay up all night absolutely racked with anxiety about the fact that I said crap, you know, or, and, and that really peaked in like in year five and six, my anxiety really skyrocketed. And so I had a little bit of like 
CBT therapy regarding that. Just some, like it wasn't anything too drastic, just little things like I would keep a journal each night. So anxiety was probably the forefront of my mental health issues and that really expanded when I started getting bullied and started worrying a lot more about what people thought of me. Um, And then when I got to, I remember year nine, so between when I was 15, I had essentially an entire year of being almost like manically happy. Um, I was sort of full of energy and perennially sociable and like it it was quite a unique feeling. Um, and in that, in that time I'd, I'd sort of hadn't been fitting in with people socially and in year nine I started putting this pressure on myself to, well, I have to be the funny person and people will like me. And that worked and people did like me and I became popular and well-liked. But with that came this incumbent pressure that in every situation I have to be absolutely switched on all the time or people won't like me and my only redeeming feature is like being a funny person, being someone who amuses people. So I got to... So were you kind of wearing that mask throughout your pre-senior years? Uh, particularly through like years eight and nine. Yeah, I was really wearing that mask. And that, that went into year 10. And I think year 10 was when it sort of really started to fall apart for me. Um, the summer between year nine and year 10, I started experiencing low moods. And over like really trivial things, like I'd miss out on the opportunity to go and hang out with some friends. And I'd cry for two and a half days. And that was really foreign to me. I hadn't had like mood spells like that previously you know I'd had my anxiety stuff but it was never it was never intense emotions it was more like stress with anxiety um and so year 10 began and I was putting this pressure on myself to continually be funny and well liked and it hit a point where I I mean I'll I'll sort of explain the story briefly I'd made friends with this group of people at school and I made a joke that you know looking back on really wasn't a big deal like it was in context, but it felt like every, like I'd been working so hard to please everyone. And in that moment, I pissed off some people and that just, the ground sort of fell out beneath me. And I f- like, that was pretty much where I started sinking into like depression. Mm. And so the next few months, like for like a month and a half after that, I was inconsolable. I thought I was a terrible human being. I was like every day breaking down into tears, breaking down into tears, mm. um, and it got to a point where I started, this is when I started self-harming. I, um, I'd flirted with self-harm previously but hadn't really done it seriously. And the way I started properly self-harming was properly in, like, inverted commas. Um, I started taking, like, dumbbells and weights and I would beat myself with them. And it was more of an anger than anything else. I was angry at myself and I wanted to feel pain because I was so bitterly disappointed in myself. Um, and so that continued for a while. Did you, feel, did you feel worthless at that point? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I felt like the only worth I had, I'd, you know, and I'd probably felt worthless previous to that, but I'd gotten away with it by subsisting on the sort of, you know, almost a false popularity I'd garnered for myself by continually being funny for people. Um, and so... A while after that, I stopped beating myself and instead started self-harming with scissors and razors. Um, and at that point, my uh, family noticed. Um, so this was all within... So no one knew about... At the, up until no, this point, your family didn't know about... No, they knew that I'd been a bit down, but they didn't really know that I was really struggling. But it, it hit a point where 
the first, so for probably a period of six months in the first semester of year 10, I was really struggling and my mood was continually decreasing and my relationships with people were falling apart, people I thought I was friends with, they, like I was really plummeting out of control and some certain people couldn't carry that emotional burden for me and had to sort of distance themselves, which is fair enough, you know, you need to look after yourself first, but of course in my position it really hurt. 100%. Um, and so it got to the winter holidays of year 10 and it was the day before going back to school and I just didn't think I could do it. So I sent a message at about midnight that night to a few people just saying, look, thanks, it's been nice knowing you, goodbye. And I snuck out and I snuck down to the train tracks, um, about 10 minute walk from my house and I was waiting to jump in front of a train. Um, people got in touch and somehow managed to wake my brother up. He came running out of the house. Um, he's an asthmatic and he just bolted anyway. Pretty much gave him an asthma attack running for like half an hour all over the place trying to find me. Um, shout out to him. That was a pretty big thing for him to do and I've probably never really given him the credit for that. So thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, and so I, that night um, I got found by the train tracks Tom grabbed me, sort of helped me off the tracks, and then the police came, picked me up, took me over to Monash, uh, and the next day I was admitted to Stepping Stones, which is the adolescent psychiatric ward at Monash, and I spent the next three weeks in there. First of all, I just want to make the point, the comment, that um, in the psych ward, they encourage you not to get close with people on the basis that you're all there at a pretty critical juncture in your lives, but you're all from very disparate places. You're not really going to be able to build sustainable relationships. But it's hard to feel that way when you walk in and all of a sudden you're surrounded by people who can really empathise with your experience. You know, so the first time I went into the psych ward, I made friends with everyone and I, it was this sense of community. Mm. Um, to, in a way, yes. There were obviously things that were really terrible, like you were seeing people who were really unwell. I mean, there were, you know, multiple pretty bad suicide attempts in there. There were people with psychosis who it was like you just had the utmost sympathy for because it's just like it's a terrible it's a terrible thing to be afflicted by. Um, you know, there are a lot of people in there going through a really hard time. But yeah, in there you sort of you you finally feel understood by these people and so you develop this really strong bond. And so I got out after three weeks of that. They needed more beds and the people work, working at the hospital thought I was fine because I was sort of being like nice to people and trying to help other people feel better. And they thought, oh, Solly's fine. You know, he's, he's clearly not, you know, he's clearly, this is just like, you know, we don't need him in here anymore. And I felt internally, I, I just thought there's no way I'm going to be okay once you put me back out there. Um, but, you know, unfortunately the mental health sector is grossly underfunded. They only have, I think, like 12 beds at Stepping Stones. So, you know, there's a lot of people attempting suicide every day and you can't keep a bed there forever. So they, they put me out and then... Uh, about two weeks later, I had another fight with someone from school. So that day, um, I had a pretty serious overdose. I took a combination of what I believe was fluvoxamine, which is an antidepressant, and then phenergan. Phenergan's just an antihistamine, but it has a drowsying effect. And I took about 120 of them. And again, I sent a couple of people, like, you know, sort of last-minute messages, like, thanks for like being my friend or whatever, or nice to know you, whatever. Uh, and my mum, uh, my brother found out about this and he was at school and he rang my mum who was at home and she came upstairs and called an ambulance and I got taken over to the hospital. 
And I spent the next three and a half days largely in and out of consciousness, but largely out of consciousness um, in intensive care. And I woke up on the fourth day uh, and was pretty shortly after that admitted back into Stepping Stones um, and spent the next month there. And so I got, I came out after a month in there, I put on something like 26 kilograms in a month um, just from, you know, eating my feelings away in there. And then the next six months or so, I was really in and out of school. I would go, I wouldn't attend class. I would sit in the library and basically cry. I was attending maybe two days a week. The other days I'd be off seeing, you know, the liturgy of doctors I was seeing at the time um, or just, you know, lying at home, sobbing, wishing I wasn't there. Um, And in this second period, this second semester, I, you know, like routinely every day at school, the days I was at school, I would go to the bathroom and like self-harm in one way or another. So I got through, I barely, but got through that second semester of year 10. And the summer holidays between year 10 and 11, I was still really unwell, but at least not having the pressure of school, I was able to, I don't know, at least do some things. Like I started really getting more into music and I was really exploring some of my interests and just at least gave me a little bit of escape from school. But then school came back again for year 11 and I got to like two days into the school year and I just went, I can't handle this. At the time I was on an academic scholarship so there were like academic expectations of me that I couldn't meet because when you're really depressed you just have no brain function for lack of a better word. Like even simple processing tasks in your brain become monumental efforts. It'll be... For instance, I'd be trying to do like math homework in the hospital that they would encourage me to do and to do an equation that should take all of five minutes. I would sit there for four hours, not be able to write anything because I couldn't think of remotely the solution and then break down in tears. That's the degree of intellectual blocking that's occurring. So I got to my third day back of year 11 and I realised that I couldn't handle it anymore and so I brought with me to school one of my favourite races. Um, I didn't have the intention to... I don't know what I wanted that day. I, I knew I didn't want to be there. I knew that I felt like I wasn't being heard by people when I would say, I can't handle this, I can't handle this. So it wasn't an attempt to die. It was more an attempt to say, this is how unwell I am. I can't handle being here and this will communicate this. So at the end of the school day, I um, went to the school bathroom, uh, locked myself in a cubicle and proceeded to um, self-harm pretty badly. And after that, I missed the next six months of school and I just spent it at home wallowing in misery and eating my feelings. Um, wow. Wow, man. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. I mean, it's, it's hard, especially in school where... You know, a lot of high school students can't really identify with you and I I can't begin to imagine how that must have felt being in your shoes. And I think the fact that you've reached this stage in your life and you're owning your scars and owning your story is is truly incredible. Um, And I feel like when this stuff was happening, you you sort of looked intrinsically within yourself. I mean, you you touched on this this idea of, you know, self-blame. Was that something that was ingrained within you when you were younger or was that something that sort of developed over the years? Oh, probably a product of both. Yeah. There was a, a, certainly a degree. Um, I always felt, and, you know, maybe perception defies reality, but 
I always felt that there was this burden of pressure on me. My family are all really high achievers. Yeah. My parents are both doctors. My, you know, a large amount of my extended family are in medicine and those who aren't are highly successful in business or, you know, in law, in really high achieving areas. And so I always felt this burden of pressure that, well, if everybody who's come before me has done so well, then not only do I have to follow an academic path, but I have to do it to a really high level. Um, and that was then, you know, obviously going to like a really high achieving school like Haylibri, which is very focused on academic performance. Yeah, yeah, um, I, can, I can definitely attest to that. Yeah. Um, I just, there was a, an awful lot of pressure from that. And I don't think anybody intended that, but I interpreted it that way. And then I coupled that with, you know, I'd always grown up with a pretty strong sense of morals. Um, and that was probably from my parents, particularly my mum, she sort of lives by the the motto of truth and kindness, you know, mm. deal with people honestly but fairly and decently. And, you know, sometimes in order to be kinder to people, you have to be less true and sometimes to be really true to people, you have to be a little less kind, but it's yeah. always a balance. Yeah. And so growing up with, you know, really amazing role models around me, um, you know, I really wanted to emulate that and be as good as those people. And so I think from a pretty young age, I put that pressure on myself to be as good as I perceived other people expected me to be. Yeah, definitely. And I, I feel like that sentiment definitely is shared amongst a lot of people in the Asian community. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of internal pressure to make sure that you make your parents happy and to not disappoint them. And I feel like I know a lot of people that would have felt the same sorts of pressures as they were going through high school. And I don't normally talk about this, but, you know, I also put a lot of pressure on myself to succeed because throughout my youth, because, you know, I went to a school like Haleybury, it's a very prestigious school and it allows you to have a platform to really succeed in life. And I, I've definitely felt the pressure that, you know, there really isn't any excuse like to be good or be at least very high achieving. And I certainly wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, you know, especially coming from a family with a, with quite a few high achievers. And because, you know, I felt like I had to perform at a high level because of that. Um, and if you take a step back, man, and, and trying to understand that mentality it's it's you know if you think for a second because you've got our older generation of people you know coming over from overseas taking that taking such a massive risk um for a better life and to provide for their family and you know if, if i sort of take it right now i definitely wouldn't have the, the guts to move overseas um and start a whole new life and i feel like it's now our generation that feels that internal pressure to make sure that you don't disappoint them and in order to make them happy, you want to make them, you know, show them that their risk is kind of paid off. And I think what you'll find is a majority of the time that all of this pressure is intrinsically driven. And all of it is kind of a self-burden because of this idea of earning respect of from your elders and from your parents and, you know, I guess your extended family. It's, it's, it's a massive cultural thing. And... Speaking of that idea of family, I know like Ujwal and I have met your family, Solomon, and they and we genuinely love them. Like we've been very fortunate to have formed a very close relationship with your with your older brother Tom and your older and your old man uh, Sean. And I was kind of wondering, you know, what was it like having such a having such a supporting family during your low points? Oh, I mean, it's a massive asset, and I mean, support comes in different ways because you know there are certain things that you know your family support you in all different ways, and people have different understandings. And you know, there were certainly points where I had conflict or tension with all my family members. You know, some people like wouldn't understand some things I was going through, and that would really annoy me, and other people wouldn't. So, um, no. So Tom, Dad, and my mum Sharon and sister Tilly—they were all really important in um, 
helping me get through what I went through. And, you know, like, you know, we're all pretty open and honest with each other that, you know, there were, there were times where, you know, they, you know, probably felt hurt by things I did. And likewise, you know, there's definitely times where I've felt hurt by things they've done. But, I've you know, it's always been, it's never been an intentional hurt, you know, sometimes in life. You accidentally hurt people. You don't mean to. You're trying to do the right thing, but it happens. I mean, you know, and it sucks and it doesn't feel good, but, you know, it, to have that knowledge that every action that someone's undertaking has your best interest at heart and to not have to second-guess that is massive because it means that you can trust in people with things. So, for instance, there was, you know, a long period over a year where every night, routinely every night, I would self-harm. And my mum was really uncomfortable. My mum was really supportive in the way that she would try to make sure, like, I didn't get infections from any of my injuries because there were a lot of injuries that required a level of, you know, like, you know, they've left scars um, and some pretty not some pretty nasty ones. So mum was really supportive in that regard. Whereas dad, I actually found it really amazing at the time, even though it was really distressing for everyone around me to continually say, oh, another day, another set of, you know, injuries on soul. Dad was one of the, I think, few people who understood at the time that self-harm to me wasn't indicative of suicidality. Self-harm for me was my way of avoiding being suicidal in that I was really miserable and I couldn't get any joy out of anything as much as I tried. One thing that would give me some comfort would be the release of, you know, when you, for me, and I don't, again, if you're uncomfortable with this, it's okay, I understand. But for me, when I would self-harm, yeah, it would hurt, but then there would be a flow of endorphins that would cool the area. And that soothing sensation of those endorphins kicking in, which I was really able to tap into almost like a drug, that became to me almost as like a substance. Um, it was so like a, correct me, it's like a therapy kind of thing? Or, or therapeutic? Or? It was therapeutic. In, okay, in a sense, yeah. it was a way to release all the anguish I felt and feel some level of calmness in response. And so having, it was like cathartic. Very cathartic. Yep. Especially there were moments where I had several moments, uh, a lot of times where you would disassociate um, and it would almost feel those brief moments where you would feel out of your body and out of your lived experience when you're depressed, that's incredibly powerful because for a few fleeting seconds, you almost don't feel depressed. Um, and that's, mm. you know, the, the horrible thing of depression as opposed to a lot of other illnesses. You know, other illnesses, you have good days and bad days. The lows of depression, there are very, very, very few good days. Pretty much every mm. day is a bad day in one way or another even to the degree that, you know, studies have shown that when you're depressed, your eyes experience colours less. You see bright colours less. So the grey feeling you have inside is reflected externally. Everything Mm. you see is greyer and duller and life becomes apathetic. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up, that idea of that relationship that exists between mental health and physical health. And I personally never knew that. And it goes to show that this idea of, the harsh reality that some people face when dealing with these things and how that's reflected externally. And one of the other ways that people can experience these symptoms is keeping everything to themselves, which is ob- which in a sense is bottling their emotions and then one day everything just snaps. And you mentioned obviously the love and support that you that your family have given you throughout your journey and I feel as if 
you wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for these these certain acts that you know of love that your parent family have showed you whether it be you know Tom running after you that night or whether it be the love and understanding from your parents and you touched on this idea of the positive things that come out of when you don't bottle your emotions I don't think that's really been an issue for you. I mean, has that been an issue for you? It is in some ways in that, okay. yeah. you know, okay. recently my girlfriend picked up on this and has been really amazing in trying to help me um, confront this particular issue. Um, and there was one thing that actually really affected me uh, last year. So for people who don't know me, um, uh, I have sort of gone through a lot of highs and lows with my weight management. Um, I was a pretty consistently mm. healthy person until I got depressed and then my weight shot up from like a mid-70s to the highest weight I got to was about 132 kilograms. Yeah. I really, I couldn't manage my weight management at all when I was so struggling with mental illness and that persisted for well beyond just my days at Haleybury. I mean, I, I still battle uh, aspects of depression every day. To me, you don't ever fully heal from depression it might you might learn to manage it better you might you know mediate a lot of the symptoms but the scars you'll carry and that to me it's almost as if before I truly became depressed I had this bright-eyed naivety and optimism about the world and I'm pretty sure that's been shattered and I don't think it's coming back and it's not necessarily a bad thing but things I've seen her done I'm not going to be able to leave that behind and um, so I'm going to I carry that with me um, so yeah, I, my weight really skyrocketed in the last couple of years. I've been able to really tackle that and dedicate a lot of my time to getting back to a healthy weight. But actually it got to the point where over the period of last year, I actually, uh, over, over last year, I actually developed anorexia. Um, and I got down to 66 kilograms at which point my, um, doctors were telling me that they might send me to hospital if I can't get a grip um, and, and it's really impacted my life um, and that too was a function of bottling up yeah. I felt this perpetual disgust with my body perpetually seeing myself as you know the 132 kilogram version of me and so you know every time I would look in a mirror I would see that every little part of my body that wasn't in absolutely perfect tip-top condition would send me into a fit and that occurred over months and months and months and I became addicted almost to being skinny and that's you know again my partner brought this up maybe towards the end of last year and was the first person to say hey soul I actually think what you're exhibiting is you know really an eating disorder you you are perpetually in dismay about your body to the point where I had several days at work last year where I would get up from my desk every 10 minutes go to the bathroom look in the mirror cry for a minute, then try to get back to work and just rinse, repeat. Um, and it took me actually until a few months ago this year when I went to the doctor and she said, you're really unwell, you look really unwell. Um, and at that point, since then, I've spent the last few months, thankfully we've been in quarantine, so it's been a little bit easier. I've been trying to put on a healthy amount of weight and get to a healthy point again, which I'm, I guess I've reached to a degree. Um, so that, you know, the battle every day with seeing yourself in a positive light is still there, but... I'm slowly learning that not to bottle that up. So recently as well, in regards to that, rather than bottling my feelings of I feel crap about my body, I feel this or that, I'll tell Kim, my partner, um, I'm having some pretty negative body thoughts today. I don't think I 
feel comfortable with certain foods or certain things today. And she's really amazing at recognising that and saying, thank you for telling me. You know, it's going to be okay, but it, you, it's much better for you to at least say this and get it out of your head. How did that feel? How, 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 does, how good does that feel for you amazing. to be able to just... It feels incredible that. because carrying that burden every day was dreadful. Like, you know, I, I'd for so long idealised being this thin athletic person you know particularly growing up next to my brother who is you know a pretty fit athletic guy he's always sort of been like he's got a different build to me he has sort of quite a slim almost uh, chiseled sort of build and me I may have been a little stockier I suppose um a little more barrel-ish which is perfectly fine it's a perfectly healthy body but I was never able to see it that way um being able to open up and say I don't feel good right now which I couldn't do for the most of last year. I couldn't do, and it meant even little things like Kim, you know, would would go on a date or we'd eat dinner together, and I'd have mixed feelings because I love spending time with her and going on dates with her, but I don't want to eat. Mm. Yeah. Um, so being able to communicate that now, and still working on my other aspects of communicating, awesome. it's an, a massive difference. Mm. Yeah, definitely, and it, it would have been a mass, made a massive difference. And you know, the way that I sort of see this issue is. You know, I, I kind of make the analogy of, of a building and, you know, imagine if you're building a building and, you know, there are multiple load-bearing areas to keep the building upright and strong and, you know, as opposed to this idea of, you know, of isolating the load-bearing part to just one part of the building and, you know, if obviously if you do that and that load-bearing part just collapses, the whole building will, will topple over. Um, and I feel like that analogy can sort of be shared um, to the mental health area um, where, when when you're sharing your feelings, you're having multiple load bearing areas of your mind, and you know once you do that, it's 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 incredibly powerful, and you know it's you feel like you're part of a team instead of you know as opposed to you know being that single pillar that that keeps you upright. Um, and one of the reasons why people don't open up to their to their mates about you know mental health is this idea of stigma. And I, and I want to ask you this question. I always ask this to all my guests. You know, why do you think that there is a stigma behind mental health? There's a stigma. To me, the stigma behind mental health stems from it's this cynical standpoint that people take that unless they can see, unless there's physical evidence that you are struggling, they don't take. They can't understand and therefore can't take that struggle seriously. It's, you know, I'm fortunate that in, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm fortunate that self-harm was an outlet for me. But one of the ways in which self, you know, I'm fortunate to have self-harmed and self-harmed the amount that I did is that it's pretty evident to people that I've had, that I've had some experiences. Pe- people, pe- people see my scars and they go, oh, you know, they may not like them. And some people, like, you know, won't sit next to me or will, like, make faces or whatever. That's, you know, whatever. I don't really worry too much about those yeah. people. Um, but people with me, they can see it pretty clearly. Mm. Um, a lot of people don't have that, uh, and, I, and I think a lot of people have a really hard time. You know, we can all, even if you haven't had, you know, someone who hasn't had cancer has had some other sort of physical sickness. Someone who hasn't had HIV has had some sort of other illness and has been immunosuppressed at some point. Everybody has gone through a physical illness. And I actually firmly believe that everybody's gone through a mental illness of some degree, but so often it goes unrecognised. So we're able to easily empathise with physical illness because we know what it feels like, we know what it looks like. And mental illness, it doesn't show up on a chart, it doesn't show up on your skin, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make your hair fall out, it doesn't do any of these things, and it's so much harder to identify and to empathise with, and also because it creates 
confusing behaviours, you know. Uh, the day I cut myself at school really badly, a police officer had to come um, just to make sure the situation was safe. And I'm sitting there in shock, about to be sent off to the hospital. And he says to me, why would you even do this? A police officer told us, said that to you. Yeah. So, you know, like, it, it, it takes all comers. You know, it, it's, it's something that people really struggle to identify and I struggle to identify it with myself I mean the year before I attempted suicide there was a really um, popularized case in the media of a uh, I, I, some people may remember the name Amanda Todd I think she was a girl from uh, yep. Canada who yep. posted a video on YouTube and killed herself yep. six months before the first time I attempted suicide I referred to her as attention seeking because I didn't understand what she was going through and I couldn't empathize with it so it's pretty obvious it's, I mean, to me, it's, you know, I'm not overly judgmental of anybody who can't see where I'm coming from because I've been in their shoes. You know, on the outside looking in, mental health is really confusing. It is, to somebody who's never self-harmed, it is utterly perplexing as to why someone would willingly cut themselves or and, burn and, themselves. And honest- mm, yeah, and honestly, like, it's, this has been something that I've been, you know, been thinking about for the, over the past four or five months. And, you know, I've been thinking about that whole, that, that whole concept and, I want to choose my words very carefully here, but I really want to understand, you know, I want to understand. That's my natural thing. I want to help them. I want to understand. But it's kind of what you mentioned before. Like, in order for you to understand it, you have to experience it. And especially for someone looking from the outside, like, you can't empathize with something that you can't understand. And that kind of answers the question, right? Like, because if you take someone who has a, who's had a cancer or, or a stroke, you can kind of identify with them i mean obviously not fully because you know and i hope that no one has to ever go through that and you know obviously you can't fully identify with it but because you can see the horrificness of what's happened to them you can see the scarring you can see you can physically see what's going on and what they're going through um you can kind of identify with it but that narrative sort of changes when it comes to mental health because i feel like you have to experience it in order to really understand what's happening and even then i think it's it's so personalized mm, i'm really yeah. careful with the language i use around mental health because one thing i found really upsetting particularly in the months i was in hospital would all these people around me my family my friends anybody would say to me i understand to which my response would be well unless you just spent the last month in hospital after an overdose you don't actually quite understand what I'm feeling. I un- I appreciate that you're being comforting and that you're trying to show me sympathy, but the, the every person's experience is unique. So when I talk to other people with similar experiences, when I talk to people, you know, people I know from the hospital, people I know from school, in life in general, I really make a point to say to the best degree that I can, I understand. Because even though it's wordy and over-convoluted, it's my version of trying to communicate while I feel like I can empathise with you to a degree, your experience is your own and unique and I can't actually know what exactly you've felt. Yeah, so what's your advice to that? And, you know, we had a person ask us this question very recently and I think it's, it's important in this context as well. What advice do you have to people that have observed a change in someone's behaviour or, you know, they're doing something which is a bit different or they can see a physical change that's sort of out of the normal? And trying to ask that question and trying to understand them and what they're feeling. What's your advice to that? It's a really tough position to be in because obviously mm. as human beings, we understand things better when we've experienced them. You know, it's, it, mm. you know, it's yeah. like you can't pick up a sport having never played it and all of a sudden be a superstar at it. And likewise, you're not going to be able to pick up 
of on course, somebody else's yeah. experience that you've not felt much of and instantly be able to understand it all. I think my key point to people would be make a concerted effort to not question people as to why they've done something, not question them, why would you do this? What is, quote, unquote, wrong with you? Instead, take the moment to recognise if somebody is moody all the time, if somebody you know is self-harming, if somebody you know is exhibiting suicidal symptoms, suicidal ideation, rather than questioning, oh, why would you do this? What's wrong with you? Try to imagine how dark and sad a place that is and how terrible you would have to feel in your life. Because death is the final to frontier, be. right? Death is the final frontier. Nobody, it's my opinion that nobody, you know, most people have even the tiniest little glimmer in them that wants to live. But when you get to a point where you're actively considering or engaging in attempts at dying, the place you are at to get to that point is almost unfathomably bad. So if you it's it's really hard to empathize with if you haven't felt that, but I suppose the best advice I can give is rather than question people as to why they're doing things or being a certain way, try to put that initial feeling of I don't understand this behind and maybe recognize I don't understand. I may not know exactly how this feels, but I I recognize that something's wrong and I'm just going to try to be there in whatever way I can. And, you know, it may not even seem like it's appreciated because a lot of people with mental health issues, it's so enveloping that it's really hard to notice or to care or to make the effort with other people when you're really battling yourself all the time. But by even, even by saying to a friend, a loved one, a stranger, I don't know what's happening, I don't know how you feel, but I'm here for you, that can make an enormous difference in not just in a moment in that person's life, but in that person's life. Because, you know, for people living with depression, moment by moment, Mm. you know, if the next moment goes wrong. Wow, that's that's really powerful stuff. Um, The power of just saying I'm there for you. I never really understood that power until he literally just said it just then, which is absolutely incredible, man. And I, I can say with some certainty that there are people out there at the moment who are currently in a very similar position as to how you were during your low points in high school. And I was actually interested in knowing the advice that you would have given your 18-year-old self, especially. Um, and I guess, you know, what is the most yep. powerful resource to their disposal at the moment? I think the most powerful tool any of us have, particularly with the battle with mental health, um, the pain of it is the isolation. The pain of it is feeling so utterly disconnected from people. So... The, the, the best advice I can give is in some way make your best effort to try to communicate with at least one person close to you how you're going. It doesn't have to be much. You could just say, you know, you don't have to tell them the whole thing. They probably won't understand the whole thing. But if you can at least let someone know that you're not well, you're not feeling good, something's wrong. That makes an enormous difference. And I, th- I think a lot of, you know, one of the key symptoms of mental illness and depression is this feeling that it won't get better. And I'm not trying to tell you that magically that's going to go away. And I know it's people get sick of hearing it will get better, but it can't get much worse. 
That's really raw. That's that's really raw what you just said. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know what to say, honestly. It's just one of those things where, yeah, I, I, I honestly can't, under, I can't understand it. And, um, you know, I, I, the only thing that I can sort of say is this, you know, if there is anything that you did, you know, is it, I, I guess there was there stuff that you did during your time at school where you felt like you get comfort from, like other than seeing a psychologist and other than seeing like telling your mates, was there anything else that you sort of found comfort from? Absolutely. There are, for me, one thing I found in particular, there are really, even if you can't find people in your physical life who will understand, there are large online communities who will be able to empathize with you. I joined for a couple of years, I was pretty active on, I think it was called selfinjury.net. It was just a forum where people who self-harmed could communicate and talk about their experiences and their feelings and it was really important it was really integral to my experience to be able to have at least somebody even if they were just you know on the other side of the world you know different life different circumstance if I could say to them hey I did this or that today and felt this about it and they could to a degree understand that that's massive because maybe the people around you won't understand it to the degree you want them to but Someone out there might, and there's plenty of avenues. So even if you can't find the people in real life, you know, there's obviously the, the key numbers you can call Lifeline and all the rest. But, yeah, course, yeah. you know, we have tools with social media. Social media can be such a, a downfall for people, but used in the right way, it can be so powerful for connecting with people who might actually know where you're coming from. Definitely, yeah. And I think the power of social media um, in this day and age is so powerful, especially if you're using it for the right, for the right things. And it's so great that you reached out and could draw strength from being able to find a community of individuals, which is really awesome, man, and yeah, kudos to you. And another way that people can sort of draw strength from is following their passion. And now, you know, we're in your apartment here in Melbourne at the moment, and uh, at last count when we walked in, I could see one, two, four guitars here. I've got four guitars here at the moment. I've got a couple more down with uh, the guitar tech that I use in, in Seaford. Um, Cargill Custom Guitars. If you have guitars, take them down to these guys. They are amazing. They <laughs> will support you in every way you want. They'll customise things to your liking. They'll do a tip-top job. I mean, I you know you take you take a guitar to them, you get it set up, and it'll play beautifully, and you know for the next eight years without a question. That's awesome, yeah. Because yeah. I, I wanted to, the reason why I'm bringing up those guitars there is because I think in your story you sort of mentioned a little bit about um, there's a time where you followed your passion. Yes. And did, so, do you feel like this whole notion of following your passion and following your um, what makes you happy? Do you think that's the best form of antidepressant, or do you think that's a that's the best form of therapy for people who are um, in the in, in who are in a very similar position? I think it's it's really interesting because there, I think through going through an experience like depression, even though everything is so foggy and hazy, certain things become very clear. In when I was depressed, it became very clear that I had no interest in science. I had no interest in being a lawyer or a doctor or any of other of these things. The thing that I gravitated to was playing music. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and obviously playing the guitar as well, that would have been a bit of a release for you, right, during your low points? Yeah, it really is. In, um, you know, in, in the same way that I talked about with, with things like self-harm where it's, you know, it's like this sort of soothing sensation where you're out of yourself, 
it's almost a similar experience with the guitar. You'll be playing something, you'll be writing something, and you'll be trying to perfect something. And the moment when you get it right is this feeling of self-adulation that, you know, particularly for people like I, I often struggle with self-worth perpetually to feel that little burst of pride in oneself for accomplishing something, no matter how major or minor, um, no pun intended, it's really powerful. And so, yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, one thing I really noticed, particularly in the hospital, was that people were really following their artistic pursuits. You know, we were encouraged openly. We'd have art lessons. We'd do meditation. We'd do music. You know, often, you know, we didn't do a lot of academic stuff. We didn't play any sport. There was a lot of... Sadly, there are a lot of very talented and a lot of really beautiful, kind people in that place who nobody deserves to go through illness, good or bad a person they are. But, you know, a lot of the people who, you know, I haven't spoken to in a long time, I've, I've tried to... I don't divorce myself from that area of my life. I'm pretty open and, you know, consistently engaging with it. But I also try not to you know, base my, my life around it. Um, people I haven't spoken to in a long time, I have a lot of respect for because they were all decent human beings. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's important. Um, yeah. It's definitely uh, super important, man. And, and I think that, you know, what you're doing is, is truly incredible. And, um, you know, I am mindful now that we have, we have gone off for some time and I just want, and just to wrap it all off, I just wanted to give a huge thank you to you, Solomon. Um, I think your message is so important for people to identify with and I just can't thank you enough for coming on the show and being as open and honest as you were throughout your story. I, I really do appreciate it and I think it's going to help a lot of people out there understand your situation a little bit better and, you know, also for people who are in a similar situation to you, it's going to help them a lot. So thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, I thank you for having me and, you know, for, you know, again, you exhibited things I really admire in that we would, you know, we talked about things and even you know, just sitting here and saying, hey, look, I'm listening and I care, you know, that's a really powerful tool for people. So, you know, credit to you guys for what you're doing. It's really, um, you know, it's, it's a, I, I don't think of myself as inspirational or anything like that because for me it's not frightening to talk about these things. I'm very open about them. I don't try to hide it. But I, I respect anybody, you know, and I hope that somebody else who for it is hard for can hear this and maybe take a little bit out of it and know that there are, there are other people out there who don't know exactly what you're feeling but will understand to even the smallest degree and that can help. So, um, yeah, thank you for having me and keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Solomon. I really do appreciate that. Well, uh, you know, that, that concludes our conversation today, Solomon. Thank you so much again for joining us and, uh, you know, yeah, this is Meg signing off. Uh, and this is Solomon signing off. And that's another podcast in the bag. We do hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. I know it was a bit intense at some points during that, but we think that the more we can have these conversations, the more this stuff becomes normalized. Next week, Sunny and Ujwal sat down with Stefano Gunawan, and they touched on so many different topics in relation to mindfulness and movement that I can't even tell you what it was about. But I sat in on that conversation, and it was truly encapsulating. In the meantime, as always, please do follow us on our Instagram page at BottledUpOz and subscribe to our website, www.bottledup.life. So until next week, on behalf of the Bottled Up team, stay safe and stay well.